Uh, the reading today is John uh, chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it is still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus, the saying, one sows and the other reaps, is true. I, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Uh, thanks, Lockie. Good morning, everyone. My name's Cam Maxwell. I'm uh, the campus pastor here, and uh, it's really great to be with you this morning. Um, the question I want to start with today is this. Looking back over your Christian life, when did you find the most excitement and joy as a disciple of Jesus? Looking back, uh, when did you find the most excitement and joy as a disciple of Jesus? Now, my guess is actually that, uh, like with every week, there'll be some here today who are not disciples of Jesus, and a really big and warm welcome to you today. It's great you can be here. Perhaps a slightly different question for you is, what do you think uh, gives Christians the most joy? What are the things that Christians find the most joy in? See, life as a Christian, uh, an active disciple of Jesus, it has many ups and downs. Uh, there are different seasons, different joys, different heartaches. Um, and it can be that when life and life with Jesus is going well, we might settle into a rhythm. Uh, you know, we might be loving our church, serving, uh, involved in small group ministries, growing in our devotion time, all good things, great things. But sometimes uh, we might just find, even with those good things, that we feel something is still missing. Um, perhaps a joy we remember, or a time we remember being more fired up and having more, uh, just a great heart and, and zeal. Uh, maybe we can't put our finger on what it is, and you know, perhaps we just assume life's a bit too busy, uh, life's a bit too full. Today, though, I have a theory uh, I want to sort of put to you. It's partly from my own experience in answering that question, partly from the passage today. Uh, my theory is that the times when our joy overflows the most as Christians... Uh, it's not the times when we're on holidays unwinding, good though those times are. I think the most joy and excitement we can have in Christian life, and the times is true for me, 
Uh, I think the thing that generally most Christians find the most joy in is being involved in God's mission. That is, sharing the good news with others, uh, sharing that we can have eternal life in Jesus simply by trusting in him and following him. Uh, Most of all, I think there is incredible joy, uh, perhaps the most joy we can have in this world, seeing people being there as they're changed by God uh, to believe in Jesus and to become his follower. There's nothing quite like it. I think there's nothing more exciting in this world than someone turning uh, from their old life and following Jesus and finding how great a saviour he is and how great a king he is. If we can somehow be part of that story, of their story, of them coming to faith, I think we get to share in that joy in a way that's like nothing else. So if we're feeling like we're missing out on something in the Christian life, my hunch is, my theory is, it's probably that. It's probably missing that extraordinary joy of being really involved in God's work. I know from my own life and uh, sort of in church life as well, uh, when things are busy, when life is full, working hard at mission or evangelism, just you know, sharing the good news, they're often the first things to go, aren't they? Uh, but when they do, when those things go, it turns out we're actually missing out. We're missing out on incredible joy. Uh, My hope today as we cover this passage is not to make us all feel guilty that we should be doing more stuff. Uh, That's not helpful and it's not fair, actually. Uh, Firstly, I think we are doing lots of good things. Uh, I think overall, many of us are very involved in mission. It just may not feel like it sometimes. Quick example, I suppose, is every Sunday we have bunches of people setting up chairs, uh, getting things ready. It doesn't feel like mission, uh, just moving things around, and yet uh, it's crucial that we have chairs to sit on and be able to share the gospel week in, week out. But also, um, I also think it's probably not fair to make others feel guilty given it's a huge responsibility for me to lead us as a church in the work of mission. Now, I want to say I'm a long way behind where I want to be uh, providing more opportunities for us all to be involved in mission together. Uh, I think that means if I'm not doing that, uh, there's less opportunity for all of us to be experiencing the great joy. Now, I say that, I do have some plans. Uh, Things are getting underway to help us move in the right direction there. Even still, I think we are doing some good things on mission together. And without having to change a great deal in our life, in our church life, there are some some things we can do uh, that really gets us back into the swing of things. Anyway, that's probably all for a longer chat another time. But really today, my hope is that as we look at this part of John, each of us simply sees how much joy there is to be had in that work of sharing Jesus with those who don't know him. Now, I kind of want us to be a bit selfish, actually, uh, coming away from today, in in a way, uh, selfishly wanting more of that joy ourselves by being more involved and enjoying, uh, enjoying that work. Because I think if we have our heart set on that, the heart set on being a part of God's work, and we're praying for God to give us the joy of seeing people saved, I reckon that's a very good thing. Uh, now, the passage we have uh, from John's Gospel, it'd be great to keep it open in front of you, the second half of John chapter 4. Um, it's really the second part of uh, what we looked at the week before Easter Sunday. Some of you uh, would have been here. Um, Jamie Seafang, uh, the pastor at Trinity Church, Colonel Light Gardens, very helpfully took us through that first part of John chapter 4. Um, Jamie's sermon is very much worth catching up on if you missed it. It's really encouraging. It's up on our website. Uh, we heard how at the start of John 4, Jesus went out of his way uh, to search out and to save someone that his peers would have despised. Uh, Someone right at the bottom of the cultural and spiritual uh, pecking order. Uh, Someone not Jewish, but Samaritan. Um, The Samaritans are a mixed race, not properly Jewish. And they had a history of not really worshipping God as they ought. 
Not only that, uh, she's not just a Samaritan, she's a Samaritan woman. Uh, so at the bottom of the cultural pecking order as well. And not just a Samaritan woman uh, that Jewish men would despise. Even her own people, her own village despised her. Her personal life was clearly a mess. It's her uh, that Jesus went to to save. And in so doing, he revealed his great heart for, for all lost in the world. As we come to today's passage, that background is super important because, well, just put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' disciples for a moment. Samaria is the last place you think that Jesus would waste his time. Samaritans don't have a good background in the Old Testament. They don't know their Bible as well as Jewish people. They only looked at the first five books of the Old Testament. They had a really dodgy history as well of worshipping all sorts of gods. Um, They're not the people you'd expect would bend their knee to a Jewish Messiah. My guess is that the disciples were expecting and hoping to just pass straight through Samaria, uh, preferably without having to talk to any Samaritans. That's my guess. As we pick up the story here in verse 27, the disciples get back from wherever they've been. Uh, They see Jesus at Jacob's well. He's chatting away with this Samaritan woman, and they're surprised. They do well to hold their tongues, uh, but I find it funny that John records their thoughts there. Perhaps these are John's own thoughts that he remembers on the day that the author... This is what they could have said. What do you want? Or, Jesus, why are you talking to her? What they don't realise is that disciple school is in session. Uh, They're about to have, the disciples are about to have their minds melted uh, as Jesus helps them and helps us to see the world as he sees it. The scene really gets set, though, as this woman, uh, having heard from Jesus' own lips back in verse 26 that Jesus says he is the Messiah, Well, she invites her whole town to see Jesus, to see for themselves if that's true. Remember, she's she's an outcast um, in that town. I imagine this would have taken great guts for her, and yet she's very convincing. Verse 29, she says, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So John tells us in verse 30, they, the Samaritans, came out of their town and made their way towards Jesus uh, as he sits by the well. It seems that John, the author, as he's recalling this discipleship moment for himself vividly, he's he's recounting how he remembers it. Uh, He's hearing from Jesus as in the distance, a town of very unlikely characters are making their way towards them. And I I gather they're visible. The Samaritans are visible to the disciples as they come. Now, after a stunning conversation Jesus has had with that woman about the nature of truth, uh, Jesus' identity, uh, and how he is the cure for a desperately thirsty soul, And as the whole town makes their way out to be saved, possibly for eternal life by Jesus, what a great moment, his disciples just don't get it. They're not grasping what matters most in this world, and they change the topic entirely, don't they? Jesus, you must be hungry, you should have something to eat. It's almost as if the disciples just don't see the moment they're in, uh, and this place they're in, that these are people who are precious to God, and that he he would want to save The disciples would rather have a snack. Before we look at Jesus' response, um, as we ourselves take a seat by the well, as it were, to sit with the disciples and to learn from Jesus, here's the question for us to help us get in the right frame of mind, I think, for this passage. How optimistic are you that God will do a great work in Australia, saving many people? Even here in Adelaide? Perhaps even at Tonsley? Or... Do you think it's a bit dumb uh, to go about planting churches, even in a place like this, hoping that we might see people meet Jesus for the first time? 
for all sorts of reasons, we can be very easily discouraged in the work of mission, especially if we stop looking at our city and our country in the way that God sees it. And so let's read on. How does Jesus see the opportunities for the gospel to change lives in a place as unlikely as Samaria? Because if we see what Jesus is saying here, it will give us the right way to see our own part of the world. And as unlikely as it may seem sometimes that God uh, will save hard-hearted Australians, well, surely if he can do it in Samaria, he can do it in Tonsley. So verse 31, uh, perhaps thinking, well, great, we can ignore the Samaritan woman, now she's gone. The disciples in verse 31 say, Jesus, you must be hungry, you should eat something. Class, take a seat, uh, Jesus begins to teach. Verse 32, Jesus fires back at them, food, food, why would you care so much about something as trivial as that? Verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Disciples pull out their classic uh, disciple pose, which is, you know, scratching their heads, looking confused by what Jesus has just said. That'd be me, I'm sure. Like, you know, that's weird. Has Jesus been eating some secret snacks we don't know about? Verse 34, Jesus clarifies My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is a great moment. We have the eternal Son of God, uh, who's existed for eternity past. He's now taken on flesh and has become human in every way. He gets thirsty. He gets tired. He gets hungry, just as we do. Actually, at the start of chapter 4, you can go back and look. We're told he's tired. He sits down by a well, he asks for some water, he's thirsty, and we can only assume, because of his disciples, that he's hungry as well. He must be hungry. And personally, I find food is a pretty essential um, way to feel satisfied. Um, That's probably the understatement of the day. Food's essential, isn't it? Uh, Because hunger, for me, it's the most obvious and strongest feeling, hunger, that something is missing in my life. It's it's instant. I know, okay, I need need to do something here, I need something to change. Something's missing. I know how to be satisfied with food when I'm hungry. And I'm already looking forward to morning tea this morning. What a thing for Jesus to say. Human like we are, that there is something even more nourishing, even more satisfying, even more life-giving than physical food. He's fully human. Which means if there is something more nourishing to him than actual food, it will be the same thing for us, something that will nourish our souls as well. For Jesus, his food, that which nourishes and satisfies, is obedience to the one who sent him. That's God. Uh, And Jesus is especially satisfied in finishing his work. And so what? Uh, What does that involve for Jesus? What is that work? Finishing the work of God. Again, just think for a moment. If you're kind of new to Jesus' discipleship group, uh, you're thinking, well, what is his work? We've got the eternal God has been sent into the world to go to work. What's he going to do? What's his priority? There there are so many things wrong with the world. What should Jesus be spending his time and his energy on? What is it that will nourish his soul? Uh, One of my uh, favourite Christian authors, who has uh, lots of great things to say about many things, including John's Gospel, he's got a great book about John's Gospel, a guy called Don Carson. Uh, Don writes this. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, 
our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a saviour. Jesus has crystal clarity on his life and his purpose and his mission. That's what we celebrated last week over Easter, that on the cross he paid for all our sins and in rising to new life, he's paved the way for us to share eternal life with him. Bringing people to believe in him and so to be saved, that's where Jesus finds his real food, his real nourishment and satisfaction. And it's the same. It's the same for his disciples. We can find the greatest delight in this world by being obedient to Jesus and carrying on his work of making disciples of all nations. See, being involved in mission is not sort of something extra we add to our discipleship. Uh, it's not just something that special people do, go and do mission somewhere else. If we're disciples of Jesus, we are on his mission. It goes to the territory. And so we find great nourishment for our souls by giving ourselves to that sort of work. But what does it look like? Uh, what does that kind of work involve? Well, let's just keep sitting at Jesus' feet a little longer here because he continues. And the next few verses, they're a bit tricky. There's plenty of metaphor in here. And to make it a bit harder for us, who are mostly city people, I believe, uh, they're all farming metaphors. So you know, put on your hats and your blundstones, and uh, let's see if we can work out what Jesus is saying from verse 35. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. It seems to me that saying it's four months still to harvest, uh, it seems a farmer's way of saying, I'm going to worry about that tomorrow. Harvest is ages away. I don't need to get onto that just yet. Jesus says, no, open your eyes. It's harvest time now. So Jesus arrived in a point of world history where everything is ready for salvation. God is gathering people. He's saving them and giving them new life. And it's time for Jesus and his disciples to get on with it now, not later on. It's now. Jesus is very direct. He tells his disciples to open your eyes. Perhaps literally, look up and see the Samaritan town making their way toward us. Look at these fields. They are ripe for the harvest. I can only imagine the disciples again scratching their heads thinking, what harvest? What are you talking about? Of course, as the story goes on, we see the Samaritans come to believe that Jesus is their saviour and they do receive eternal life. It's clear when we get to that part that Jesus is talking about them. That's the harvest he has in view. If only the disciples had eyes to see what he sees. When you look at the world, uh, do you see a world that is ripe for harvest? Do you see the world as Jesus does? Uh, with precious souls everywhere uh, that he has died for, that he is calling to himself. So those moments when you see great crowds in Adelaide, perhaps heading to the footy, or doing the Christmas shopping at uh, Marion Shopping Centre, uh, are our hearts stirred for the sake of their salvation? Are our eyes open? And do we see that now is a time to go about sharing the gospel? You have to be careful, though. Jesus isn't saying that at every point, uh, all we do is share the gospel and people will be saved left, right and centre. That doesn't seem to be the point here, because he goes on continuing uh, with his great agricultural metaphor in verse 36. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Now, what's he saying? Uh, the reaper seems to be the one that gathers the crop. Uh, the, that is, they're there as they gather people into eternal life. 
the main instrument, as it were, that God uses to help people come to faith in Jesus. That's the reaping. Uh, in this story, it seems, uh, the next little bit, Jesus is that reaper. Uh, he, is, he is the one that he gathers, the Samaritans, the crop, uh, as they believe in him and receive eternal life. There's nothing more joyful, uh, nothing uh, that gives Jesus more uh, great joy than seeing someone precious saved through faith in him. To pass from the kingdom of darkness without hope to the kingdom of God with a sure hope for eternity. There's nothing sweeter, nothing better, no food sweeter. Jesus is the glad reaper. He has the joy of gathering his people. Jesus is teaching a wider point here as well for these disciples and for us that yes, there is great joy as someone finds eternal life, but the sower, the person who laid the groundwork as it were, uh, they were the main instrument that got someone started on the journey of faith or kept them going. They also get to rejoice in this great harvest. Think about what does a sower do? To continue the metaphor, I mean, I guess it's like the Samaritan woman here. Um, she's gone out and she's shared her testimony. Or perhaps like John the Baptist, he's been uh, very much in the limelight in the last three and a bit chapters of John's Gospel. The Samaritan woman, John the Baptist, they're people going around pointing others to Jesus, just sharing the good news with them. These people may not see the fruit of their labour. They may not be there when that person meets Jesus for themselves and is saved. Yet there is incredible joy for the sower as well. They're glad together, the reaper and the sower, as they're doing the work of God. It's true, Jesus says, one sows and another reaps. Isn't that a great encouragement for us uh, from Jesus to keep sharing about Jesus as we can, just to keep sowing? Uh, For all the parents here today uh, who have been sowing the gospel, uh, teaching your children about Jesus, uh, pointing them to him, whether it be a short time or for a long time, uh, that is a great work. Uh, Keep going. Uh, Keep praying for your children. Uh, You may be there on the day that they take on active faith in Jesus for themselves, or uh, someone else may swoop in after all your hard work and someone else will be the one that leads them to faith in Christ. I don't think you'll be upset at that point. Uh, There is joy for the sower and for the reaper. Uh, For those who do uh, that hard work uh, week in, week out in our creche, in our minis programs, in our kids programs, what a great work to sow to set a foundation for faith in so many young lives. And some of you get to see children growing into that faith themselves. It's wonderful. Uh, Then there's our youth leaders. Uh, They're the classic reapers, actually, aren't they, Uh, in many churches. After all the hard work from parents and kids ministry leaders, the cool youth leaders kind of rock up, just like on a camp that you throw on this weekend, uh, rock up and just without any work, easiest thing in the world, just lead these uh, these youth to Christ. Barely had to do anything. Praise God for that. Uh, youth ministry is uniquely, uh, uniquely rewarding in that way, uh, uniquely, cha- uniquely challenging as well. So do pray for our youth leaders, especially as they're on camp this weekend, and, and pray for a great harvest in our youth ministry. So as well as kids and youth, uh, what about that work that happens day in, day out, in many, many lives, that work of sowing? I know what's happening. Just trying to commend Jesus to, to our family, to our friends, to our co-workers. It's happening, and it's hard um, Jesus says it right here, actually, at the end of verse 38. Others, the sowers, have done the hard work. Sowing is the hard work. Preparing others to meet Jesus, it can be hard, it can be discouraging. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, and we shouldn't be put off by it either. But one day, it might be you, uh, it might be someone else, but that person may just meet Jesus and believe in him. What joy. 
I'm also encouraged to hear from uh, someone here just before Easter. Um, their workplace was giving employees the option to share a bit about their own culture, and there are plenty of cultural backgrounds there. Uh, just for a minute or two at the end of a meeting, just share a bit about their culture. This person thought, well, why not share a few minutes about Easter, uh, what I believe and what it means to me? So she put up her hand and gave it a go. Uh, what a great step of courage, seeing her workplace the way that Jesus sees it. She may not be there to witness others in her workplace meeting Jesus and believing in them. She may. But if one of her colleagues does put their trust in Jesus one day, well, of course she will rejoice. Perhaps she doesn't even know the impact that minute or two she gave uh, could have on someone's eternity. Even imagine just running into one of her colleagues in heaven. I came across a story this week, another encouraging one, about a guy called George Miller. Uh, he's a fascinating guy. I, just, I read a bit about him. He was a pastor in England. Uh, he set up many orphanages and he cared for over 10,000 kids, uh, 10,000 orphans in his life. Um, as a younger man, he met three particular guys and, and George shared with them about Jesus and he started praying for their salvation. Uh, he lived a long time, uh, lived a long time, especially for the 1800s. Um, and in his diary, there are records of him praying for these three men daily. Uh, when George died, none of those men had given their life to Jesus. But they did in the end. Uh, two were in their 70s and one in their 80s, and George wasn't there to see it. He didn't get to have the joy of being there when they met Jesus, but he has the joy now of sharing eternity with them. Well, in verse 39, uh, verse 39 the discipleship lesson continues uh, with what happens next. Because uh, from verse 39, the Samaritan woman's testimony did leave many to believe in Jesus, uh, and so they asked him to stay around for two days, uh, which he did, which is astounding. A Jewish rabbi, two days in Samaria. But then verse 41. Because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. There's a pattern here that's been uh, repeated millions of times throughout history now. Uh, a life gets transformed by Jesus, like this Samaritan woman's, and she just tells people about it. Some of them think, well, that's amazing. I, I want to find out more. Uh, and when they come to the words of Jesus himself, they put their trust in him and are saved. Do you see in verse 41, it's his words? It's not his miracles. Uh, it's not how kind or loving he is that saves them, ultimately. Verse 41, it's because of his words that many more came uh, and believed in him. Verse 42, they heard the woman's testimony. That was a good start. It got them interested in Jesus. But hearing the words of Jesus is how faith is born. His words, uh, the very words we have in Scripture, uh, they have the power of salvation in them. That does seem to be the normal pattern of people putting their faith in Jesus, hearing a testimony of what Jesus has done in my life or you know, a life of their friend, uh, and then hearing the words of Jesus and believing. Which makes me think, each of us should probably have um, a testimony ready to go, just ready to share at the drop of a hat if we get the opportunity. It might not be a dramatic story, it might not take us hours to tell it, but just a short two, three minutes, how do you summarise the amazing work God has done in your life? How do you tell that story in a way that's captivating and, and earnest and compelling? Could you? Uh, could you do that? In a, in a minute or two, just the elevator pitch, as it were. Uh, could you do that? Just explain why trusting in Jesus has been such a good thing in your life. 
I find that very hard to improvise. I need to spend some time thinking about that. So perhaps uh, all of us, if we have 20 minutes to carve out this week, wouldn't that be great? Just try and write something down to just give you a few thoughts. If you want some homework for the week, there you go. Um, you can even have a go at sharing that in growth groups during the week. Even still, our testimonies will never be um, the thing that saves people. Uh, in the end, our confidence lies ultimately in the words of Jesus to save people. Jesus is always the one ultimately who reaps. It's the word of God by his spirit that gives birth to real faith. So opening up the Bible with someone uh, is a great way to see them come to faith. Uh, we have some great resources I can put in your hands, uh, easy for any Christian to use, uh, to take someone else through John's Gospel. Uh, come and see me after if, you want, if you're interested and like to pick up a copy of that. I should say as well, if you're just checking out this whole Jesus thing for yourself, um, reading the Bible, uh, just picking up and reading is a great way to come to uh, understand what's going on. We have copies of Luke's Gospel on the, on the table over there next to the black box. It's our gift. Uh, take it home for you if you'd like. Uh, the final discipleship lesson in this passage, and so the final thing to encourage us in this morning, uh, is the shocking realisation for these first disciples, these very Jewish disciples, that Jesus is not just their saviour. Verse 42, uh, the Samaritans, they're the first ones in John's Gospel to work out that Jesus is the saviour of the world, not just of the Jewish people, of the world. What a big world it is, what a big harvest it is. There's so much work to do, so much sowing, so much reaping, and so there is so much joy to be had. Uh, those who have been around with us for a while will know we have a range of mission partners um, that as a church we want to be linking with and encouraging uh, just mission in the world. Uh, groups like the Church Missionary Society, CMS, uh, they send out families like the Purdy family, a family we support uh, here. Um, uh, they're off in Chile to, to train pastors for South America. Uh, a few weeks ago, we heard from the Bush Church Aid, um, BCA. Um, they equip and resource ministry to rural and regional uh, parts of Australia. Uh, and far more locally, uh, the Evangelical Students, a group on Flinders campus who are doing great work uh, sowing and reaping amongst uh, uni students, even here at Tonsley. Now, here's the thing. We have lots of great partners, and please don't think we should support those groups so that other people can go and do good work elsewhere. I think we should be far more selfish than that, sort of. Think about it this way. If you ask the question, how can I get the most joy possible out of the years left in front of me, how can I do that? Well, one big way is by investing in, praying for, and supporting the gospel work happening all around us. We can have a share in the way that others are sowing and reaping and a share of the joy that comes from it. I can feast. I can have a great share of joy just by supporting, encouraging, praying for this, this type of work. Uh, those three groups I mentioned, uh, CMS, BCA and ES, I get uh, regular email updates from all of them. I pray for their work and every now and then, workers in that harvest uh, share a story about someone who has met Jesus. They share lots of stories about sowing and you get some stories about reaping and you think, wow, as I'm reading an email, I'm thinking, without any effort at all, really, um, I get a huge share of joy. It's great encouragement. It's great spiritual nourishment for myself. So as a church, I think these are the sorts of things we can really be tapping into, selfishly, <laughs> to, to have our own joy, seeing other people saved. So as a church, I really do hope we can keep lifting our eyes, seeing the world as it really is. It's a place ready for harvest. I hope we'll find great joy as we pray, 
as we just try and work out what our own best contribution uh, to mission and work is. Um, that'll look different for all of us. But if our hearts are all set on finding that joy, seeing that joy of people being saved, coming to eternal life, we're praying that God would help us and give us opportunities to do that, I think we're going to be just fine. So let me pray that God would do a great work through us and save many people to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for allowing us to share in the joy you have at gathering people into your kingdom. Now, we don't always know the best way to go about playing our part in your mission, uh, but do help us, each one, and us as a whole church, to have eyes, uh, eyes that see the time for harvest is now, Help us to have hearts set on seeing people entering into eternal life. And so please give us opportunities, give us encouragement, give us ideas and resourcefulness and courage to sow. And we pray to reap that we might, through our efforts, see many uh, put their trust in Jesus and find eternal life in him. Amen.